Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. According to the PISA test, the U.S. ranks 38th in the world in math. Unsurprisingly, many say we need to do better. But at the same time, our students consistently rank math as their least favorite subject. So, as a country, how can we become better at math and at the same time make kids more interested in math? How might we develop a love for the subject? To discuss this question and more, I invited Poe Shen Lo on the podcast. Poe is a professor of mathematics at Carnegie Mellon University, and he's famous for being the national coach of the United States International Mathematical Olympiad team. Before he became coach, the U.S. team hadn't won the competition since 1994. And since he took over, the team won in 2015, 16, 18, and 19. Poe is heavily involved in math outreach, and he's currently on a nationwide math tour and has created an innovative program for high-achieving high school and middle school students. Poe, welcome to the report card. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Poe, I've talked to a number of professors on this podcast from different subjects. And professors, you know, they kind of do research and then they do some teaching. And I would say that for most of them, teaching is kind of a secondary concern, right? Their research is, is key and teaching might be something that they do because it's part of what they must do for their job or it's just not their primary interest. You seem to have a lot of interest in teaching math. Why is that? Well, actually, I'll go so far as to say that the research that I do is figuring out how to do teaching. So I, I think actually it's very interesting what you just brought up because I often think of what my role is as a professor. One reason why people want to go to a university to learn is because the person they're learning from is not only telling them about the subject, but is also one of the innovators in the subject. Research, by the way, is coming up with new ways to do things. So as you mentioned, I'm on a nationwide tour, and I also do various programs for middle schools and high school students. So what I'm actually working on on the teaching side is that I'm actually not the one doing the direct teaching of every single person that we're teaching, but I'm working on the innovations behind the research of how you might be able to scale something like this up much larger. But I just love teaching because I view, I love the, I love the area of teaching because I view that that's the future potential of the entire world. So I want to get into sort of how you conceive of mathematics instruction and teaching and how that may contrast in some ways with how much of American math education is done. But to start off with, you teach some pretty high-achieving students, and not just high-achieving, but these students that participate in the International Mathematical Olympiad, which from now on, I'm going to call IMO uh, listeners, be aware, but these IMO students they're, they're doing some pretty high-level math. And I'm sure that IMO is a relatively low-ranking sort of show on ESPN. I don't know if it's the best uh, spectator sport. So let's uh, sort of orient our listeners to that. Basically speaking, uh, who competes in IMO? Sure. So the IMO is where every single country sends a team of six students to represent that country at the International Math Olympiad. And in the United States, that happens to be run by an organization called the Mathematical Association of America. And so I work with them uh, to, I guess, send these six students to the, to the international math competition. And of course, those are selected through a series of exams called the American Math Competitions. And those are also all run by the Mathematical Association of America. But for me, when I think about what I do with those students, there's a huge difference between working with the top six students in America and teaching math. When a math teacher teaches math, they teach the students what to do. When you work with the top six math kids in America, they teach you things. Right, right. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about that contrast. So, uh, but again, just to get people to understand how the IMO works, right? Because it's a novel thing. A lot of people will think about math through the tests that they took, right? And so the tests that they took were largely taught to them as a series of problems that sort of built on each other until you could do a harder problem that was made up of several other problems. And oftentimes you do well on the test by doing the problems that you're expected to do and avoiding mistakes. I'm guessing that IMO is not like that. So describe how IMO actually works. What are the kinds of questions? How long does it take? How does a team work together? Right. So with the International Math Olympia, the first thing that you do is you sharpen your pencils and then you go duel other people. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. No, no. It's, it's, it's actually, but it is indeed completely different from the way most other exams work. When people make questions for the International Math Olympiad, their goal is to make questions for which people have no idea how to start. 
that novelty aspect is actually a very important part of the design of the questions. Now, when you're, when you're trying to challenge people who are the best in the world, the way to challenge them is not to ask them to calculate out numbers. A lot of people think of a math exam as something where there are numerical answers. Through, through lots of repetition, they've come to think this way, yes. That perhaps is the case. Uh, but now, if you actually go and take mathematics, I'm not only talking about Math Olympiad, if you go and take mathematics in college, what you'll discover is that you spend most of your time writing essays. Because you see, the breakthrough that was calculus was Newton and other right. people thinking about why you would do something, not necessarily being able to do an AP calculus exam by following specific steps. The breakthrough was which steps should you take and why do they work? So theoretical mathematics, and sorry, not just theoretical, college mathematics, is all about trying to figure out why things are and explaining them. International Math Olympiad is a stepping stone towards that. So people sit down, they have two days, four and a half hours each day, three questions on each of the days. So there's six questions total. If you're six following, questions. Three right. times two is six, right? So six questions total. And that's a nine-hour total to think about six questions. Each question is asking you, why is something true? Let me give an example. Uh, and this is not an example of an International Math Olympiad problem, but I'll give an example of a problem that maybe people can understand, and I'll give a flavor. Great. So there are certain numbers in the world called prime numbers. Those are like two, three, five, seven. I skipped six. I skipped a bunch of them, but I skipped six because six you can break apart into two times three. Right. But seven you can't. Seven you can only break into one times seven, so you haven't broken because you still have a seven. All right, those are prime numbers. And there's a famous fact that there are infinitely many prime numbers in the world. I said it's famous, so this will never be an international math Olympiad problem. They'll only ask you things that are not known. Right, but novel. The, novel, novel. Sure. But, but the point here is the style of question would be, can you write a bunch of paragraphs explaining why there are infinitely many prime numbers? You see what I mean? There's, there's infinitely many of them. Why? It's not because I just keep finding them. You know, how would you prove that there are infinitely many things? You can't do that by saying, watch, I listed all of them. You can't. It's infinitely many. So this is a huge distinction from, well, teaching math as computation. Absolutely. The computation element would be to say, could you factorize the number 25? Yes, it's 5 times 5. This is a proof. Could you explain why there are infinitely many of them? And the fun part is, these proofs are asking you, can you explain this? Where you don't know how to do it. You have to think about it. So when you took over the IMO coaching, the U.S. hadn't won in something like 20 years or so. Uh, what did you do differently? And maybe I should just ask, when you coach these students, you work for, with them for about three weeks a year, is, is that right? Uh, how do you coach students to not learn computation, but to learn how to get better at these kind of mathematics. And this is mathematics. They're already good at math. These, ki these kids aren't uh, trying to learn computation, but you're trying to get them very good at these kind of conceptual explaining, creating, answering novel mathematical questions. How do you prep kids to do that? Well, first of all, I was in the right place at the right time, in the sense that the United States actually has been building a stronger and stronger culture extracurricularly of picking up significantly more math than is in standard curricula. And because of the internet, there are more and more resources which are coming everywhere. So it so happened to be that the people started to do much better around when I was there. I can say certain things I do differently. I want to be careful I'm not taking credit for this because these are, yeah, these, these are the work of the students themselves. But the things that I did do differently are... I already expected that I will not be able to train those top six students to become superstars at math because you can't do that in three weeks. So the approach I was taking was I'd go all around the entire country. I'd give talks. My goal was to inspire, inspire 10,000 people, starting from middle school, to actually want to go and spend more time doing math because you cannot in three weeks become a superstar in math. But if you start to engage with people when they are fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, well, now there's seven years between that and 12th grade when they might be on the U.S. team. And so I was starting to run around the country giving talks. That was the beginning of this crazy thing that eventually became the tours that I run today. And But when you're preparing for the, the IMO students for those three weeks, I mean, just what does that kind of look like? How do you engage with them? What do you push them to do? So what I did with those students is, again, a little bit unusual. I taught them things that have nothing to do with the contest. So I've always felt that if somebody sees where they're going, then they're maybe more inspired to go harder. 
And so instead of saying, well, the contest has these particular subjects, let's practice these specific problems. My assumption was, you already have practiced a lot of those problems. So the, the question is, how do we work on inspiration and motivation? And so I actually would tell them about the kind of math that I did in my research. I also, I don't only do research in education, I was also doing research in pure mathematics. I would bring over people who were former math Olympiad contestants, who are now professionals, who do research in other things, or maybe not even research, they do other things entirely in industry. And what, what my goal was, was to show people, here is where you could go. And that was, wonderful that, that was wonderfully consistent with what the Mathematical Association of America was willing to do. Actually, when they put me as the coach, when I was speaking to their executive director, I, I remember I, I told him, the U.S. is going to do worse under my leadership because I'm not going to care. A good selling point. Yeah, yeah, well, I wanted to be upfront. I'm always an upfront yeah. guy. I said, I'm going to not focus on whether or not we win the contest. My measure of success is if I have the opportunity to meet some extraordinary talent from the United States, I want to maximize the chance that I might read about some of them in the New York Times in 20 years. And why might we read about them in the New York Times? I mean, you're looking at, to interact with these talents, the ones that are going to produce what? That puts them on the, the pages of the New York Times. Well, that's for each person to decide, right? The point is that if you have somebody who happens to have a lot of passion, happens to have a lot of commitment and has demonstrated the ability to do so, now the question is where do you want to direct that? Because obviously in high school, there are these contests you can do. Life is not a contest. Life is open-ended. And so that's why I would show them, here are all these interesting things people can do. Some become entrepreneurs. Some become scientists. Some become mathematicians. Some go to economics. You can go anywhere with this. Okay, so you're a professor who also teaches college students, right? And you have this uh, math learning program that you've created for high school and middle school students. And we can talk about this um, some more. But you have a teaching method for these students. And my question is, does the approach that you have for these really high performers, does it trickle down to students who aren't necessarily there yet that work at the college level or even the high school or middle school level, because a lot of people will hear this and say, it doesn't sound like the math education that uh, that I took. So how does that approach translate to, you know, students who aren't already accomplished on, you know, the computational side or on the basic levels of mathematics? Oh, this translates. Well, so let's, let's be careful. So what I just said I do with the top students in America, I did not yet say I taught them math. Notice, notice sure, what I just sure. said. What I said was they taught me math. And of course, I, okay, I do teach them some math too. But I view that as such a small fraction of what I do, the math teaching to the top students, that when I work with top students, it's all about inspiring to try to do something else with your life. Now, the work that, the work that I do on education with everyone else is actually teaching. So now when we talk about college students and also when we talk about general audience, I find that to be an amazingly fun challenge. At my university... The classes that I teach include audiences who have never done advanced mathematical competitions before. That's how I know the methods that I will talk about in a moment generalize. But I've also, just for my own challenge, even around here in Washington, D.C., a few months ago, I went into a Title I school, seventh grade math class. That's because one of my former students from Carnegie Mellon is a teacher there, was a teacher there. And so I just went into her classroom and I taught a lesson on slope. What I'm trying to say is that I actually find the challenge of trying to approach everyone to be interesting. And the only way to understand that is to actually go into that situation and attempt to execute it. Now, the method that I use, so we just talked about methods, the method that I use to actually teach, which, will, which is what I use from Carnegie Mellon to Title I seventh grade lesson on slope, is that if there's a concept I'm trying to teach you, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I will not tell you how to do it. I will only keep giving you hints. Well, I'll, I'll first say, here's what we're trying to achieve. And I will keep dropping you hints until the class brainstorms the way to actually solve the problem. And after we have a very dirty, messy way of solving the problem, then I will say, okay, now let's tidy it up. Here's how you could do it. But the important thing is that the heart of the lesson is from the improvisational experience between myself and the students. When I go into a class, I do not have a roadmap. I do not have a PowerPoint. I only know the area of math that I'm going to teach. I know the problem we're going to concentrate on, and I'm going to play Iron Chef. You're going to give me ideas, and my job is to cook something with your ideas, make something work, and then show you a tidy way to do it. So for decades, kids have been solving problems in math. And what you're talking about sounds more like 
problem solving in math. And reversing those words is, is different, right? Like you can hear a teacher in your, in your mind's eye, solve this problem, but it's very different from what you're doing uh, or describing, which is let us engage in solving a problem. And then sort of on the back end after this engagement is, is drawn in, sharpening that up or getting it cleaner. This sounds like a big turn from the way most kids are educated in math. Am I wrong? Is this quite distinct and quite important? This is quite distinct. But I also think that, again, I have the luxury of just doing it as the guest lecturer. And I did not have to be held to the fact that, well, my curriculum was supposed to already have a, a roadmap and I was supposed to cover exactly these concepts for the exam that's coming up that the state is going to give to the students. Right? I'm trying to say I have the luxury of teaching in a university and giving guest lectures. I think that what I just did, unfortunately, not every teacher has the freedom to do. Because if they did this, what if they ended up spending an extra two days on this concept? And the funny thing, by the way, is if you do it this way, at the beginning, you'll be slow. You might spend the first half of your year taking a long time to do the basic concepts, but then your kids might actually understand fractions. And then suddenly the second half of the year, maybe you'd accelerate so fast that these kids, they can do everything. Because this is a different model. This is the model that you don't learn how to do each problem type, practice each problem type, and then you do the exam on it. This is actually learning how to create in math. This is more, this is more variable time is what I'll say. And I, I mean, I happen to have friends who are teachers. They don't all have the freedom to do that because they actually might have to do these specific topics. Somebody told them they have to do these specific topics at these specific weeks. And my method might take you longer. And then you'd catch up later. So let's talk about some of the differences in this. So, I mean, one of these questions is how hard is it to sort of add doses of problem solving into the the main way that mathematics is taught in most public schools. Yeah, I have tons of respect for teachers. And in fact, I, I have friends who are teachers. I have students who are teachers. I even work with Math for America. It's a nonprofit organization in New York. But what we do is we give, I mean, I go as a, as a guest lecturer and we will run professional development sessions for teachers to go and help build different styles of teaching. So I want to say that all of this stuff is all, all of these things that I'm saying, I want to emphasize, I have the utmost respect for what people are doing. And by the way, I've also seen that there are challenges in the classroom that go beyond giving the material. Sure. Especially as you start to visit classrooms of all different um, socioeconomic status, there are many different challenges that are there. So I think, I, I think that this is just, this is a very large shift and whenever one makes a very large shift, that's difficult because you could break a system. That's why what I've always been trying to do is I don't want to break what's already going on in case that breaks too much. I've been interested in how to provide additional opportunities that run alongside. So rather than going head on and saying, I need to go and change the way that you do things, I respect that there's so much you're doing that already factors in things that I don't see. So I'm not going to tell you what you need to do. On the other hand, outside, there are lots of other ways that you can engage outside. It's, for example, I'll, I'll lead this example. Many people don't expect to get all of their soccer practice from the school gym class. Indeed. They don't. And how about the, the baseball? Is the school gym class in elementary school your baseball? Actually, not really. I think one of the beautiful things about America is that you can actually go from this other menu of what you want to do. Because maybe not everybody wants to spend all their time doing one particular thing. And so that's why what I've seen is that because of the freedom of the menu of all this extra time that we have after school compared to some other countries, we have lots of extra time after school. Well, that can be used to learn too. And that's why I've recently been working on ways to bring in these resources and opportunities just coming in through the internet so that anyone can do it. I actually want to emphasize this point about how I have traveled around the world to see how other education systems work. And I've seen that in some other countries like China, people are very heavily scheduled even in the normal school. And what I think is beautiful here is I often tell people, it's great that the school isn't giving every single person a very long mandatory list of things to do. That free time at the end of the school day, free time of you get to go home, well, you can, or, or stay in school, you can actually think about other things and you can, per, you can pursue what you want to be great at. So I mentioned in the introduction that, yes, the U.S. is trying to improve math performance, but there's this secondary problem, and that is you really want kids to like math, right? So you're also discussing, well, there's these problem-solving things that are much more engaging, but we do have a system, and we have a system that moves a lot of kids a long way through math instruction. 
how do we increase interest in math instruction, respecting these variables that, you know, some of these systems, we're not just trying to break it all down. Right. So to me, that's about exposure. And so the point is when students are able to start seeing, oh, problem solving is fun. So I want to emphasize one thing. I didn't yet say it's useful. In this whole podcast, I have not yet said math is useful. You may have noticed that. And I've always been focusing on this, maybe you can tell from my voice, it's about the interest, the passion. I mean, why do we do baseball? Is it because it's somehow useful? I guess it's, you can get more fit. But it's not like the baseball playing is going to make you make, I mean, some people make a ton of money, but for the average person, no. Yeah, relatively few. Relatively few. But my point is that somehow it's fun, and there are people who make it fun. And again, I want to say that inside the, inside the school system, there are so many things that we have to do, so I'm not going to t- say what they have to do. But what we try to do is I try to expose as many people who hear that, oh, you, you could find out how this math is fun. Well, how? Well, you have to make sure that whoever is delivering the message is delivering it in a way that is trying to make it interesting. And now this is where delivering the message, my, my take on this now is we don't try to tell you it's useful. We just try to find people to deliver the message who have taken improvisational comedy people who have learned from performers. You see, I'm now doing something very strange. This is, this is the, other stuff, the other stuff that I work on now. My philosophy is that there are people in this world who are professionals at making you want to listen to them, even if what they're talking about is not real. It's a skill. And for me, when I was teaching, I used to teach, okay, and at some point a few years ago, I spent an entire year taking four hours of improvisational comedy classes a week and just being around people for whom their passion was performance. And what I learned was that there is so much that you can communicate in a facial expression. This is just different. Now now I'm not even saying what order. Do you learn to multiply fractions or add fractions? Do you tell anyone fractions are useful? No. Let's just make you want to listen. There are people who do this. And that's why the new thing that I've created is how do you scale this? Because, okay, I'm one person. I'm running around the country. I'm giving talks. I did, I don't know how many cities this year. Last year, I did 75 talks. I, I just lost count, right? So, but I'm only one person. And the question now is how do you scale this? And that's the new thing that I've created, to be able to scale, to let all kinds of people to see this kind of passionate math instruction. So it strikes me that there's sort of a divergent path here. And it's a challenge for a school system. I'm sure there's thousands of math teachers out there that say, yes, I enjoy math. Math is is fun. But the methods that we have devised, which generally speaking are, let's work on computations. We give homework that is sort of, it's very rote. It's repetitive. I tell my daughter, you need to work on those fractions so you can get stronger to get to this next level. And we will just get you through this sort of cycle of math. And I'm at the other end, so I understand how these are related to problem solving and how these will bear fruit for her later in uh, her years, but she's 10, and she doesn't quite see that. And so sometimes this we, we do have like this long mechanism that many students will ask the question, well, how is this useful? I don't understand what the benefit is. I can see that many people would say, well, a problem-solving approach would be obviously beneficial because it's so broad-based and applicable to things other than just mathematics. I guess my question is, what are the difficulties that the way we teach mathematics lock students into interacting with math in ways that don't engage them, that might put them off so they say, well, I'm not a math person. I'm sure you've heard that before. Are there steps that we take that we build into the machine that we need to think twice about or loosen up? Well, as I I mentioned, I do very strange things, right? So in your particular example, you said you have a 10-year-old daughter. Sometimes the person that the 10-year-old daughter will actually listen to is a 14-year-old girl, which might not be you, right? If you're trying to tell her this is true, (laughs) if you're trying to tell her this is good for you, I guess your 10-year-old daughter might still listen to you. But at a certain age, it might be that if you tell somebody you should do X, they will do negative X, which is the exact opposite. So the philosophy that I have here is, you know, why don't we shake things up really crazy? Again, inside the school system, we're not going to shake that up. That already exists. We're going to leave that be. But what if we made it possible for your 10-year-old daughter to experience talking to a 14-year-old girl who is brilliantly passionate about the mathematics and also doesn't look like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. 
then suddenly, what 10-year-old people think is, you know what? I could be like that person. And she looks like she's having fun. I want to be like that person. Believe it or not, sometimes they don't want to be exactly like your dad. Indeed, frequently when I start explaining something at length, she will say something like, uh, never mind, Dad. I'm I'm not interested in your belabored explanation. <laughs> right. Maybe from one of her uh, slightly older peers, she would be more engaged. Right. So the exact thing that we've created is I've created a way that scales this out. So suddenly we have a huge supply of these plus four years older students who are actually off the charts brilliant in math because they exist. They're all over the U.S. But previously they weren't engaged in delivering education. And then what we also have done is for all of these high school students, we bring professionals to teach them improvisational comedy, drama, and performance. What I'm trying to say here is if you actually want to inspire the 10-year-old, you need the 14-year-old. So say a little bit more about this program. What is the mechanism by which you're trying to get these 14-year-olds to help the 10-year-olds and the 16-year-olds to help the 12-year-olds? Right. So this is actually the new idea I got last year. And I was surprised when it suddenly popped into my head and I thought, oh, wow, this will actually work. And it does. So the point is we're actually solving two problems at the same time. One problem is, of course, the education for the 10-year-olds. But the other problem, which I happened upon, which maybe you're familiar with, is that the world has a lot of brilliant math people who might not be the best communicators. This exists. And in fact, in high school, there are tons of high school math geniuses who are not the best communicators and who, who could learn how to communicate. And believe it or not, it will change their life more than more math learning. You've probably experienced with all of these different people that you talk to and, and the work that you guys do, that the impact of a person and the fun a person has in their life is not purely what they know, but how good they are at getting some other person to grab onto their idea, pay attention and love it. Yeah, so communication is a big part of this Huge. puzzle. Yes. Huge. And I'm actually going further than what people usually say. People usually say, I want to teach mathematicians to communicate, and their standard is so that they can explain their method to someone else. To me, that's not enough. You need to be able to be so good that you could get a random stranger to want to pay attention to you. So this is a very high level. Who are the professionals in this theater? So what we do is we find these brilliant math people. It's actually very hard to get into our program. There's a huge application process. It goes to an interview. We find people who are brilliant at math, extremely passionate at, th at wanting to have this skill. They don't have to have it yet. And actually being nice people. Once they get picked in, then we bring these professional entertainers. We teach them how to be good. Wait, how does this all connect? The way this all connects is if you want to learn how to be a very powerful communicator, can you do it by just watching somebody? You need to, you need to try. So what do you think the country's top math students would be very comfortable and confident talking about math. So that's actually how this all connects. Because then what happens is that these sessions where there's interaction between the high school students and the middle school slash elementary school students, those teaching sessions have both sides winning at the exact same time. The younger people, they get to learn math from these people. These people, every minute of that, is actually their training because we add one more element. This is, this, is what, this is what is in this particular innovation. So far, I've just described peer tutoring. Come on, I went to high school here. There was that. Sure enough. That's not new, okay? Sure enough. But what this is, is we have one more ingredient inside this exchange. There's a drama expert because all this is done online. So we can conceal a drama expert in the interchange. The drama expert is invisible to the middle school and elementary school kids. They have no idea that he or she is there. But this person is watching the high school students and giving real-time feedback on all kinds of things, like how you control your voice, when to pause, when to go farther, when you speak, don't cover your face. You know, all of these things. We're giving real-time coaching to a high school student who actually would have no other opportunity to get that level of professional coaching on improving their interpersonal communication skill. Suddenly, every minute of the interaction is gold for both sides. This was never possible before, because if I was in high school, when I was in high school in the 1990s, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have this online system. Sure. If there was a high school student tutoring a middle school student and a theater person right in between. It'd be chaos. It'd be chaos. Everyone would just watch the theater person. And so that's what's new here. So this, this program is actually, it's on my own website. It's, the website is live, L-I-V-E dot P-O-S-H-E-N-L-O-H dot com. P -O -S -H -E -N -L -O -H com. That's my name. And so what we do here is that the high school students from all across the country who are off the charts in math, who are ready to learn these other skills and interested, they apply. 
there's a long selection process. They get in. And then after they get in, they have months of practice and training. After that, then they're set loose to go and teach the middle school students. I need to emphasize the middle school part. That's not free. And that's because if you look all over the place, there are plenty of ways to learn more things outside of school, whether it be math or basketball or baseball. Right. Classes are never free. So this is we're just operating this in the standard American free market way. Right. But we just set a price that happened to match this, the standard price in the, in the market, and we delivered something like this. But then suddenly, all of these middle school students who want this are coming in, and they get to learn live classes. Actually, I should emphasize what makes this work is we also make it look like Instagram Live or TikTok. Um, this is a podcast, so it's not possible to see. But what we actually did is we went and said, we went and said what are the visuals that current teen, uh, tweens, current tweens and 10-year-olds and so on are used to looking at for their entertainment anyway? Let's match everything and have the math delivered by people who are near peers, brilliant, and also coached in all of these skills. So this is actually fully scalable. And this is how we see a way of already contributing. The point is, what could this do for a teacher? Again, I'm not trying to change what they do. However, suddenly their student would show up for their class. They would already know a lot of things. And what I did when I went to public school in America is I knew a bunch of things. I didn't make a pain. I wasn't a pain. I would help the teacher. I would go and help the people around me whenever it was time to do extra work. And that's the mentality and the philosophy we're instilling. So that suddenly this could actually, interestingly enough, also help the teacher by making it so that their students who are at the high end are no longer a sore point of what am I supposed to do because their parent keeps coming saying that they want to accelerate. Suddenly that parent is satisfied and the student is coming back in and actually even helping. So... Poe, we do a section on the report card every week called Grade It. Are you game? Sure. All right. First off, the potential for online learning. Oh, I'll give that one an A+. But that's just because that's what I happen to work on right now. I view that because of the Zoom pandemic. Sorry, not the Zoom pandemic. Because of the... You can keep that. You can keep that word. (laughs) It sounds actually right. But uh, (laughs) yeah, because because of the Zoom pandemic. Because of the Zoom pandemic. uh, What happened is that everyone learned that you could try to do education online and they found out that there were many, many issues with it, such right. as people not being engaged. But what, whenever there's a problem, that also is an opportunity. And for example, what we work on is we worked on figuring out what were all of the things that made Zoom learning not engaging and what made Instagram Live engaging. Obviously, Instagram Live is engaging. How did they do that? And so what we did is we just said that's an opportunity. Everybody in the whole U.S. basically had to do go through this. So they all know what is a certain baseline. And basically, whenever we show what is now possible, people's eyes pop open. All right. The metaverse. Wow. Uh, that's a good question. I would just go and I'd give that a C, actually. Uh, metaverse. Like, to me, to me, the metaverse, it's, it's something which sounds interesting. But I think real life is really interesting. And I love human interactions. I love a real human face. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, and this is going to be recorded, of course, and maybe a hundred years later, everyone will say, Po Shen Lo, he likes the old-fashioned flesh and blood. But I think I don't mind saying that. Doing math and pen. Doing, I love that. That's an, a, that's an A+. plus. It's because, for me, there's no such thing as a bad idea. If you wrote down something, you were thinking about something which maybe you have it wrong. Like earlier I said something about evens and odds and you might have it mixed up, but it's still good that you made that idea. The worst thing you can do with a pen is you cross it out. But it's still there. So you might be able to return to it later. I do all my work in pen. The danger with pencil is once you erase it, what if it was a good idea? Or what if there was some nugget there? So that happens to be my thing. Of course, if you're... If you're doing a test and it's all crossed out, it might be a bit painful for the teacher to look at. Indeed, I right? It is that. painful. But maybe I'm just used to whenever I grade someone's work, I'm hunting, I'm fishing for ideas. And so if student turns, I'll, I'll say this way, when I grade the exams at my university, if a student writes a whole bunch of stuff and crosses out some wrong things, but there were good ideas there, I'll give them points. Calculators for math classes. Ah, so calculators for math class, used in the appropriate way, I'll give it an A. Used in the appropriate way, I'd give it an A. I personally loved calculators. I view that a calculator, if used to do the routine thing where I already know how to do it, it's just saving me time. If I don't know how to do it yet, I should learn how to do it first and then use the calculator to save time. But today, if I'm ever doing a calculation, I use a calculator. It does take out some of those unforced errors. 
Yeah, unforced error. I love how you said that. Improv comedy. That's an A plus plus. That changed my life. I, I I will say that whenever somebody is trying to communicate to somebody else, you obviously have to think about what you're going to say, and sometimes that causes a person to not speak because you're still thinking about what you want to say, and that can make it more difficult to carry on a conversation. But your ideas might not be bad. It's always good to start indicating your ideas. Improv comedy teaches you how to just start that sentence. You're gonna finish it. Full touch Hagarama chalk. That's an A plus. You, you you know what I like. Explain to us why this is so important. All right. So first of all, I'm the guy who has a box of this in his house. Okay. I have like I don't know. I remember. I think I don't remember. I think it's like 72 pieces. Okay. So this is a special kind of chalk where the thickness is a bit thicker than a normal chalk, so it won't break as easily into two pieces. But the writing it makes on this on the chalkboard is so smooth and generally dust free, and the lines always bold. I'm an old school guy. I actually prefer chalkboards to whiteboards because when I teach, I like to bang that board and write down these bold lines. When I do that with a marker, the tip of the marker gets smashed in, and the Hagoromo chalk makes it so that when I strike with a line, it's always a nice bold line. Every but time. at this point, it's hard to get. Is that right? Uh, it used to be hard to get. Another company bought it. Okay, so fantastic. That's, when when I saw they bought it, I went and I got I got a bunch. The ever living laws of supply and demand. All right, you say you you've been going on math tours, and I'm going to tell you that most people don't know what that means. What are these math tours, and what's the purpose of going on them? I mean, how do you get people to come to listen to you talk about math? Right. So the key is that inside these talks. I don't just talk about math. In fact, they're all advertised as here's how you could see how the math can relate to creating things in the real world. That's the selling point. Right. Now, I came up with this math tour idea because I used to go to schools before the pandemic. I would regularly be invited to give talks at schools at math competitions, and sometimes a university would run a public lecture and didn't invite me over. Then the pandemic made it so I couldn't travel, and I got. I got all pent up. I need to go out. You got antsy? I, can't I got imagine. antsy. Oh, yeah, you can imagine. Right? So then suddenly in 2021, in the summer, in May, it suddenly occurred to me, you know what? If I hold these talks outdoors in public parks under shelters, they're reasonably safe, at least from my scientific understanding of pandemic transmission. Even though at that time, people were still cautious about holding events indoors. And I wanted to be able to run this without a mask because I've said before about communication. It's so much easier to communicate to someone with your face if they right. can see your face. So I suddenly got the idea, let me do these in parks. Everyone told me I was nuts. Because how in the world can you go to a park? There's no speakers. There's no projector. And who will come? I'm happy to say we solved all of these things. So I travel the country with 180 pounds of AV equipment. I go to a park. I'll set up. We advertise these things through parent social media networks, occasionally Facebook ads. We often will pay for these. Right. Sometimes we don't do that as much anymore because more effective is I'll reach out and my team will reach out to teachers and they will say, well, there's something going on here. Do you have students who might be interested in coming to one of these events? When I was just in Memphis, there were almost a hundred people there. I asked them, where did you find out? And they said, oh, my teacher, my teacher told me, my teacher told me that's because their school year had already started. And so we had all of these people coming in and they were just interested. What is this? Some crazy math guys here. And we didn't do a math lesson. It was more of, I'll tell them a story of what I actually do with my life, right. which is to use math to create things. So let me ask you a bit uh, back on math instruction. There's this concept called mastery learning, right? Or, or mastery instruction. It's been around for a while. The basic idea is, you know, students learn things in math class. They take a, a test. Some students are going to get a 70, some an 80 and 90%. Uh, and then regardless of how well a student does, they move on to the next episode or the next chapter. Mastery learning says, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. You should move ahead when students master the material, especially in cumulative subjects like math. Now, if you were to do mastery learning in the way that we typically teach math, well, that can put a big break on a classroom. If you're going to slow it down for the students who have not mastered it, then you have this struggle to do with different speeds. Now, with online learning, it seems like mastery learning might be a little bit optional. There's tools like the one that you're talking about for pushing students ahead. So my question is, does the idea behind mastery learning make sense? And to what degree should it govern the way we think about mathematics instruction? 
So I've thought about this a lot because actually in an earlier iteration of what I was working on with education online, I was working on mastery learning. I said that was earlier. That means I've moved away. So, so let, me, let me just share my take on these things. Again, this is just my take as a person who innovates in this space. I'm not yep. the only expert, or I'm not even sure I should say I'm an expert, but I just I play with this space. So my view is mastery learning was very hard to integrate into a standard classroom because of what you just said, that there are 30 people and it's sort of a production line. So it's very yes. hard. So in some sense, people were trying to just make an online version of that to split everyone apart. I view that that was created because everyone assumed it would forever be impossible to get enough human beings to live stream classes. That's why I said the breakthrough for us was last year, October to December, when I suddenly realized there's a new way to get enough gigantic supply of labor to live stream in a way where that labor wins. So that's why I don't do mastery learning anymore. To me, mastery learning is something where you still view every concept as something that you practice enough times, and then when you see the test, you can do it on the test. I think that's limiting because what if you see something, what if you have to do a problem that you've never seen before? That's called real life, the world. We always are solving problems we haven't seen before. Problem solving is what we actually need to help people learn how to do, right? Uh, but now, before it was not possible to do that. So that everyone was just saying, let's have online systems maybe or have teachers, uh, let you try the concept enough times until you get it. I still think it makes sense to master up to fractions. I think in order to start playing with new problems, you need to know fractions. But the good news is that's not what you learn in 12th grade curriculum. That's actually relatively early. And once you get to that point, I actually think that the right thing to do is to not even, not even to think about fixed concepts, but to try to get every single student to love coming up with that new idea. Because then if you ever see a problem you've never seen before, your brain starts racing. In the line of work I do, I also employ people. I'm also I'm an entrepreneur. I run a company. Whenever I hire people, I don't want to see how well they remember how to do tasks. Every, every task we have is new. It's always new. You're asking me questions that I've never heard before. I want to see, can I find people who are capable of dynamically generating a huge burst of ideas and then filtering, which are good. I actually found out if that's what you teach people, suddenly they can do all kinds of concepts. There's a one-step equation and there's a two-step equation. These are two different concepts that sometimes in, maybe in, in curricula, there's this thing you practice enough, that thing you practice enough. I don't think there are one-step and two-step equations. They're equations. They take as many steps as they take. You just beat up one side and what, you have to be fair. If you beat up this side, you've got to beat the other side the same way. Beat the equation enough times until X is alone on one side. You solve the equation. And now what we want to do is we want to find a way for everyone to be able to do this. And what was difficult before is it's quite hard to make an AI or a computer system to dynamically give feedback on a person's idea because the idea is so amorphous. It's like this thing about prime numbers. You need to have somebody who knows everything about the prime numbers who will say, yes, I like that idea. And let's do this. Yes, and. It's improv comedy. Right? And so before I got to this idea, I was actually working on online systems to automate mastery learning. Then I realized we can just align incentives in a new way. And suddenly there are potentially 10,000 high school students who will be changing their lives while they can change the lives of hundreds of thousands of other people. But what do you say to the teachers who have been doing this a long time? Look, there's a system for teaching math. If I've talked to folks that try to encourage change in the way we're just used to teaching math. And not trying to criticize those teachers, but there is this system, especially in the younger grades. We have to get a lot of kids, well, we want to get all the kids to a minimum capacity where their computational abilities, particularly up to fractions and so forth, builds the foundation for uh, more advanced math. We want to make it attractive. We want to also plant the seeds that will open up into problem solving. What do you encourage teachers, particularly in this sort of base building phase, as they're trying to both uh, fulfill the demands of this, you know, you could call it a conveyor belt teaching system, which does exist. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. Um, how do you encourage them to build up students that are going to have a sense of accomplishment and are going to be more likely to be in that top 10% of achievement? Yeah, the first thing I would say is thank you for your service. 
I mean, that I, I sincerely believe that for anyone who is teaching right now, you're doing something incredibly valuable for all of the students who we have here. So that's where I would start. And then the next thing I would say is, I wonder if you might be able to also steal some, steal is the wrong word, borrow some of these concepts that I've just shared here. Suppose you're teaching third graders. Your school might have some fifth graders. What if there is some way to have the fifth graders and the third graders interact? Obviously, that's not something that we have done before, but this is just a new idea. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people who tries to think, what could we come up with that's not scarily disruptive? We're not telling them that the fifth graders are the ones who are going to teach the class. However, I wonder if there might be some interesting ways to think about you know, these various new things that are being done and make your own innovations. But what I say by, why I say this, I say it's your own innovations because then you also own them. You, it's not like I want to tell you what to do. I'm here on this podcast sharing weird ideas that we've actually managed to scale up and are actually working that people never tried before. And my goal here is not to tell any one person that they should follow my ideas, but to say, if these were possible and no one thought of it before and no one scaled it before, what else could there possibly be? Once you make your own idea, every teacher, by the way, every elementary school teacher, you design your own classroom. That's your space. And you have your own vision that goes into that. I respect that. That's amazing. And similarly, what I'm trying to do here is just drop a bunch of ideas that are working. Maybe you will, you will find some way to integrate something like this in. And then as you can see, the theme I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do the inspiration. It's a lot easier to teach people if they're inspired to listen. So that's all I do. And oh yeah, random thing. If you ever want to take improv comedy classes, I gave that A++. I forgot how many pluses. That changed my ability to teach. I took those when I was 35. I'd already been teaching for a while. I thought I was good. Then I took those after, after work. It was fun. I made some friends and it changed my ability to grab people in. So I asked a little bit about the sort of base building time. When we think about at least the K-12 span, we tend to think of the upper end through a lot of pre-college classes, right? We think about algebra one and two, geometry, trig, pre-cal, calculus. To what extent do you think we should think about math in high school as getting students through these subjects? Because I'm telling you, I have students in high school now and we've built this track and that's how they think about math. Do you think these two should be separated, can be separated? What do you think about that progression yeah. as, as good for math education? So the interesting thing is my own experience going through public school in the United States is that I did both. There was a problem solving side and then there was a base building side, the trigonometry, the calculus. The way I always saw it is that I would learn how to solve problems and I would also take the class from school, which would make sure I covered all the bases. And it made it, because I had the background in problem solving, if the teacher said something, I was much more quick at picking up what's going on because I could anticipate, oh, that's why you do this. But I always had these thoughts in my head of, that's kind of beautiful. It's that I had previously made my own messy construction that would, it's as if I tried to build my own car. Good luck. If you try to build your own car, it might go. But that's not the same as seeing this is what a car looks like. And you, 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 know, you, you should see how someone actually does something. So my experience going through mathematics class in high school in the U.S., by the way, I was on the U.S. International Math Olympiad team myself when I was a student. So I was one of those people who, you know, I, I knew a lot of the math. But I actually valued going to my public school, high school math class and listening to my teachers. It was almost like watching a, a movie or watching a story of this is how things are done. Ah, neat. And yes, I finished the homework fast in the class and I just helped it. I helped the eight people around me and that was really fun for me. So the way I see it is that there are these two different axes. There's the problem solving axis and then there is the base building axis. We actually need both. In my university, there are lots of math classes which are building base, well, much more complicated base, but it's abstract mathematical base. And then the class I teach at Carnegie Mellon is the problem solving class. I teach a very strange curriculum at my university where all we do is we look at problems we've never solved before and we practice brainstorming. This class has over 200 people enrolled. I have more than 3% of my entire university in this class. And I think that in the school curriculum, again, I don't want to put more work on the teachers. So what we have done is we've made it possible and scalable to bring the problem solving piece out to huge numbers of people because of the fact that this supply, the labor supply problem has suddenly been solved. So Many of the solutions that you've been talking about are sort of a both and, and I get that. When you envision the future of building advanced mathematics at the high school level, do you 
foresee this as sort of an extracurricular rather than a primarily curricular endeavor? Or do you think that we should try and build it into the typical high school's production line? Well, that's really interesting. So I'll say right now, I don't know the answer. Uh, Right now, when I said 10%, that's only because our supply of delivery of these live instruction can only scale to cover the top 10%. I said only now. But the vision, by the way, is that our thing grows fast. Every five years, whoever you taught is now suddenly much more capable. It, we expect that in another five to 10 years, we would have enough high school students to teach 20%. If this grows exponentially. Then add another five to 10 years, we could teach 40%. So now the question becomes, at which stage does this integrate in some very, very strong way with the formal education system? My approach was always, since we have a completely separate, scalable source of human led supply, there will come a point when the two will merge. And we will do that in a way where we try to be as respectful to everyone as possible. And that's why I've made it very careful. I've been very careful through all of this that we are never trying to replace a teacher. We're never trying to get in the way of the teachers. But whenever there's a new resource that can be used, well, then what can we do thoughtfully to integrate these things? Potion Low, thanks for your work, thinking on the edges of advancing math study. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Wonderful. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Poe Shen Lo. We'll include a link to some of Poe's work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And when you do, take a minute to leave us a review. That helps other people find the show. You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.